0: I'd ask you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Joel should hear more crispy pages crackling today because as we work our way through the Minor Prophets, we know this is not one of the most well-studied portions of scripture maybe. Uh, We just worked through Hosea, the first of the 12. And if you remember way back to when we started Hosea, uh, we did kind of an overview of the 12 Minor Prophets as a whole. They write over a long period of time, roughly 500 years of Israel's history is covered in these prophetic writings. They write to a divided kingdom, they write to a conquered exiled people. Prophets write to a people that are brought back into the land. They write to northern and southern kingdoms. They write to different geographical places. They write to different uh, people in specific situations. So uh, while there's great broadness in their social and political context, there are some very consistent themes that keep coming up. We put them on the banners behind me so that they stay consistently in front of us. One of those things is the sovereignty of God. The minor prophets in particular see God's hand in everything. From the war to the drought, to the exile, to the restoration, God's sovereignty is in and through every bit of what these men write. And not only God's sovereignty, but uh, we see God's holiness. We know... And when we talk about holiness, we talk about purity and moral virtue, and that is true. God is perfectly holy. He is absolutely righteous altogether. But when we talk about God's holiness, it's more than that. It's his otherness, his distinctness, his separation, not his distance from his creation, but his his weighty otherness that demands and deserves all of the worship, not only of his people, but of all the nations. And then the Minor Prophets bring us back to the idea that God is just that that holy, sovereign God must deal with sin. Sin among the nations and sin even among his own people and that God alone judges rightly and righteously and perfectly and will ultimately judge finally. But we also see through the minor prophets that this God who is holy and just and sovereign is also merciful. He is the God who restores sinners, not because they deserve it, not because they finally make themselves clean, but because he is a God of unimaginable mercy. God does what is necessary to be just and the justifier of his people, a theme that Paul picks up on in Romans. And today we're going to move into the second book of the 12, the book of Joel. It is uh, significantly shorter than Hosea. Uh, It's written to a different people in a different time, but we are going to see common themes, common warnings. And uh, my hope is at the end of the day, we see a common hope given there. So if you're not there already, find your way to the book of Joel, chapter 1. I'm going to read the first four verses to set the stage for the book and then the chapter that we're going to look at today. Joel, chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before another of the minor prophets with similar themes, similar warnings. Uh, God, I pray that our hearts are once again stirred to consider why you've written these things for us, Uh, not just why they were important for Israel as a people at a place in history, but why you've left them preserved for your people even today. Lord, while we are not called to place ourselves in the place and the time of Israel, Lord, we are called to remember that we worship the same God the same God who is sovereign and holy, just and merciful, the same God who called the people to himself then and who calls the people to himself now. Lord, I pray that as we study your word, you'd open our eyes, that you would shake our often sleeping hearts and stir us to attention. Lord, we need your help, not only to read and to understand but certainly to apply and to put these things into practice and so lord we do ask that you would come alongside us that you would enlighten our eyes that you would stir our hearts and that you would help our feet to walk in a manner worthy of our calling lord we thank you for being faithful to do these things we pray in christ's name amen now if you remember back to last week when we looked at hosea one of the pictures that hosea used to describe the kind of terrible stubbornness of israel was of a child that refused to be born and we know that that's a picture of stubbornness and things not happening naturally because when we think of something like a pregnancy uh, there are signs that accompany what should be the birth we can uh, look at a situation we can tell even if we don't know exactly at least toward the end there are signs that mark the beginning of the birth there's uh, there's differences in the way that the lady feels there are differences in how she sleeps there's differences in the way the baby's position there's pains that come along with it there's signs that tell you that something significant is happening uh, many of us walked outside this morning and before we knew what the weather was like you could tell that it was going to be something of a rainy day the pressure changes and you get headaches or you have a trick knee that tells you when it's gonna rain or you do look and you see the growing clouds you feel it in the air you can even smell the difference there there are signs that tell you that rain is on the way there are a number of things any number of things in life where an event is pointed to by signs that ought to make it pretty clear that that's what's happening when it comes to the book of joel god's people are in danger of missing a sign god is warning them through a very particular event about things that are going to happen and joel the prophet speaks not only to that particular event but then to what it points to as we move through in matthew we went through the Olivet Discourse, and the disciples asked Jesus, but when are these things going to happen? What is going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And then Jesus spends two chapters telling them what signs are going to accompany the end. Joel is one to write about the day of the Lord in the sense of what is coming in the end. And just like Jesus does, he talks about signs that ought to snap people awake to the reality of the intervention of God in their lives. The problem is, We are dealing with a people who are not only ignorant to the signs, but who are stubborn and slow to respond. So we're going to open up the book of Joel over the next two weeks. It'll only take us two weeks to get through. Today we're going to look at the introduction, the summary of the book as a whole, and then we're going to look at the specific situation that Joel writes to, and that'll cover chapter one. But let's open this up and let's first look at the summary, and when we come to a new book, a new place, a new writing, we have to ask first, who wrote it? Chapter 1 and verse 1 gives us that answer. The word of the Lord, which is the first place we need to stop. This is not the word of a prophet. Ultimately, this is the word of the Lord who wrote all of the minor prophets, who is divinely responsible for every word, every thought, every picture, every part of Scripture, and that is God himself. Because Scripture is inspired, it is truthful. Because Scripture is inspired, it is authoritative. Because Scripture is inspired, it is profitable and useful for us. So God is the ultimate author. is isn't just a theological trivia. It matters to how we think and read and respond to this. So God is ultimately speaking, but he's speaking through a man named Joel. And with some of the minor prophets, we know more about them than others. With Joel, this is all we get. We we know almost nothing else about him. It's a fairly common name. Uh, Joel means Yahweh is God. We're told the name of his father, but that is all the information we have on either of them. There are other Joels in the Bible. This is probably not one of those other Joels that is mentioned. As we move through his prophecy, it does get a little bit more clear as far as who he writes to. Um, So the author likely speaks, and pretty clearly speaks to the southern kingdom. And if you look at the slide behind me, then that should look familiar by now. We know that after the death of Solomon, the kingdom is divided. 10 tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. The tribes in the north have a different capital. They have different sites of worship. One in the north at Dan, one in the south at Bethel, their capital in Samaria. We know that they're ruled over by several different dynasties or families of ruling kings. There is not a consistent line that rules over the northern kingdom. Then we have the southern kingdom, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, obviously known for Judah, the larger of the two tribes. The capital remains there in Jerusalem. They still worship at the temple. They have a king from the line of David that rules over them, although that is deeply contested at some points in their history. But just because the people in the South have the right place of worship, just because they have the right line of kings ruling over them, does not mean that they are a consistently obedient people. In fact, they face many of the same temptations that their Northern neighbors do. The temptation to worship other gods, the temptation to forget God, the temptation to seek the help of other nations or the strength of their own armies or political forces, rather than relying on God And so where Hosea wrote to those northern ten tribes, a people living in continual and constant rebellion with bad king after bad king, Joel speaks to a people in the southern kingdom, and he's calling them back to faithfulness in God. And we can see that as we go through because of the way he writes and how he writes directly to the priests at the temple. Every indication is he writes to the people in the south. But then we ask the next question, that is, when did he write? Remember, the prophets write over a huge time span. And this is probably the most debated part of the introduction to Joel because it is very, very difficult to pin down when Joel wrote. And we have people that kind of claim Joel wrote anywhere from very, very early in the divided kingdom all the way up to after the people come back from exile. Uh, Assumptions range really over the whole span of the writing of the prophets. Um, Which means first, dividing a church over the dating of Joel would be a really bad idea because this is one of those things that we can't be dogmatic about. That doesn't mean that we can't make conclusions. It can't mean that it doesn't mean that we don't uh, assert certain things, but really this is one of those things that we should not divide over. But when we do think about Joel, we can I think place it reasonably accurately if not dogmatically. First of all, if you look at just the arrangement in your Bible, Joel comes fairly early. Hosea, Joel. Now, this argument is almost immediately undermined by the fact that Hosea was not the first writing prophet, that that's placed before Amos. But understand that Joel being placed early shows at least an early indication that he was assumed to be an early writing prophet. That's kind of minor. But then, as you work through Joel, we do see themes that other prophets begin to pick up on and give greater detail and structure to later on. If Joel writes early, it makes a lot of sense why Amos picks up his themes and expands on them as if they were known. Amos in particular develops some things that Joel says. Although Amos wrote to a different people, it seems like Joel was known on that. And if you look in your notes, on the back of your note-taking page, you'll see that picture, that flyer uh, with the chronology of the prophets. And if Joel comes before Amos in particular and before other writing prophets who would pick up again that idea, particularly of the day of the Lord, that Joel introduces in kind of seed form and then moves on and other prophets expand on and give detail and depth to, then my best understanding, and it's not just mine, a number of people's best understanding, is that Joel writes likely midway through the 8th century B.C., 850 to 830 B.C., which makes him very, very early in the writing prophets. again you'll see in that timeline that he writes before Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and those other prophets that do pick up the day of the Lord idea so he introduces us to this thing that is going to be picked up and carried on over and over and over as we work through the rest of these books but no matter where you land on that the why of Joel is much easier But why does Joel write? Again, ultimately because God loves his people and communicates to them. He writes because God tells him to speak. But why does he write what he does when he does? Well, the first thing that Joel writes about is a specific historical situation that happened to the people. He writes about an infestation of locusts that had come in. The next picture up there shows you what kind of they look like. The locusts are these swarming grasshopper like things that absolutely devastate a landscape. They can leave nothing behind them. And if you look at Joel 1, verse 4, he kind of gives that picture of it. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust is eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust is eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust is eaten. And there have been dissertations written on the difference between cutting, swarming, hopping, and destroying locusts because you need something to write a dissertation about. But. More than anything, it is a picture of the fact that these locusts have come in and what one left, the next took, and what he left, the next took, all the way down to bare ground. This is a picture of absolute agricultural devastation. And when you are writing to a non-industrial people whose life depends on the growth from the land, this is a devastating picture. So what Joel does is he takes this devastating event that has happened in the life of God's people... And he uses that historical moment to develop this theme of the day of the Lord. And when we start to talk about the day of the Lord, boy, there are more than one dissertation written about that. There are books and articles and seminars, and that means that in the church there are different positions on this, which means the day of the Lord then becomes something of a dividing line sometimes between people. And again, I have deep convictions about what it means and what it doesn't mean, but we do need to approach this humbly and biblically clearly, it doesn't mean we don't talk about it, but it means that this this is important because this is what God is telling his people, both Israel and us, about what is going to come. What is the day of the Lord? Well, the day of the Lord, first of all, is not a specific 24-hour day. It is a period of time that is about or belongs to the Lord, Yahweh. And you say, well, that's a huge jump, given the name is the day of the Lord. What else will you teach me today? But that means something. This day of the Lord that is coming is a period of time that offers particular clarity about who God is. His people have forgotten. The nations have forgotten and in some senses never had a clear understanding to begin with. That will come to a point of clarity. The day of the Lord is a period of God's judgment poured out against sin. The sins of the nations and the sins of his people. And the day of the Lord is also a picture and a time that demonstrates God's mercy, his preservation of a remnant, of a people through this time. No matter what your position On the day of the Lord, and again, we'll develop it more clearly and more fully as we go through not only Joel, but the rest of the minor prophets, because he just introduces the concept. Like we read at the beginning, the day of the Lord has to have implications for how you live. Joel writes to a people who have been devastated by a plague of hoppy things, and he says, that is not the point. You need to understand that this points to something greater. And then he telescopes that out. And he says, this unique event is a warning about what will come. If you don't listen, something worse is coming. And if you don't listen to that, then you are going to face the end and final judgment. So this day of the Lord is set forth as a motif of a particular unique day of God acting and intervening in human history. So now that's kind of the big picture overview of the book. Joel, an author that we don't know much about, writing to a people that are living in the southern kingdom at a time of difficulty, but spiritual slowness, warning them about a day that is coming, a day of the Lord, a day that is going to really highlight these four themes, God's sovereignty, His holiness, His justice, and His mercy. The day of the Lord encompasses all of those things. And now we're gonna go through chapter one and we're gonna take that summary and we're gonna see how it fits into the particular cultural situation of the people. This is Joel's small focus writing. This is Joel's taking the historical moment that they are in and using it to say, this is not just random chance, this is God intervening and interacting with you. Because chapter one really deals with the present situation, but it's a people that are slow and dull hard of hearing when it comes to the things of God. And, and as we go through Joel chapter 1, what we're going to see is that he divides it into these different calls to different groups of people. Now understand that every group of people that he addresses, everybody is meant to hear this. It's not like, all right, only elders, you listen to this first part and then go, so on. All the people are designed to hear all of these things. Uh, but it's like he highlights different segments of the population and say, if these won't listen, maybe these will. So we're going to open up chapter 1. We're going to see four different groups. And the first one of those is the elders. Look at verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. And that parallel right there. Elders and all the people of the land. Joel has a ton of those where he balances the lines. It's almost poetic the way that he writes. Hear this, elders, and understand this, all you people of the land. Uh, Elders were just what they sound like. They were... Older men, respected, given a position of uh, influence over the people. They were supposed to be models of not only dignity and wisdom, but worship. And the implication is, if the elders hear, then the people hear. If the leaders of the people hear and understand, then the people will hear and understand. And that's the idea of hearing and giving ear isn't just physically listening. The understanding is that they're supposed to hear and then understand and then act on it. How do you know whether somebody actually heard what you asked them to do? The answer is when they do it. If my boys are outside playing basketball, and they're yelling and screaming and throwing the ball around, and I poke my head out the door, and I say, guys, in two minutes, it's time to stop and clean your room, they're going to say, yeah, yeah, we'll get to it. And I say, you heard me, right? What did I say? Something, something, clean your room, two minutes, got it. Close the door. First of all, the chances that they heard me, slim to none. They heard the words, but how do I know if they've actually heard and understood what I asked them to do? If in two minutes the rim stops breaking and they come inside and the room gets cleaned. Joel is saying, listen, you're not only supposed to see what's going on and hear my words, you have to hear this and move to the point of action here. Here's what they're supposed to understand. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Listen, guys, pay attention. Something unique has happened. You've got this plague of locusts that have come through. Now, I want you to think about this, elders. I want you to think about this, people of Israel. Look back in your history. Has anything like this ever happened before? No, it hasn't. This is something unique, and that should wake them up. That should be something that triggers in these people a theological understanding. They are not supposed to be superstitious like every nation like every rainstorm or every dry spell has some spiritual significance, but a unique event in the life of the people, there is supposed to be a theological mindset in the nation as a whole that God is not absent from things like this. In particular, because we went back through Leviticus 26 over and over and over as we went through Hosea, because God promised to do certain things for them. If they lived in obedience, what did he say he would do? He would protect them. He would feed them. He would multiply their crops. And now something has come and decimated all of that. And if God at the very beginning, before you moved into the land, said, if you're obedient, this won't happen. And now this has happened. What should the understanding be? Perhaps we're disobedient. But the problem is they see this and nothing is actually getting through this devastating thing happens and they just kind of throw up their hands and say, oh, well, what can we do? This is really sad. This is really terrible. How are we going to feed ourselves? What's going to happen? But there's no spiritual connection to the theological reality that's driving all of this. And that is so important because once again, this is laying the foundation for how Joel talks about the day of the Lord. He says, look at this historical event. Has anything like this happened in the past? And the expected answer is no. And as he points to the day of the Lord, the particular day of God's judgment, again and again, it's going to come about that this is a unique thing. You will be able to point to this day of the Lord and say, has anything like this ever happened? And the answer is no. Sometimes that's why we have such trouble talking about the day of the Lord because we talk about every trouble at any particular point in history like that's the day of the Lord but there's a uniqueness about it that's really starting right here in the very beginning of Joel. A unique event, something that ought to call attention to what's going on. So what are they supposed to do about it? Consider whether this has ever happened before. And then verse 3, tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Guys, see, this thing that is happening, this devastation that the locusts have brought, you need to not only realize what it is, you need to tell your children about it. You need to talk to your kids and their kids to their kids and on down through the generations about that time that God wiped out everything in the land because we were sinful. We very often come across the idea that God recognizes that people in general are not only sinful but deeply forgetful. And so God graciously gives reminders to his people. Every year on this day, celebrate the Passover. Why? so you don't forget what i did for you in egypt when you walk across uh, the river jordan on dry ground i want you to pick up stones from the middle i want you to stack them up on the other side why so that when you walk by that pile of rocks and your kids say what's with the pile of rocks you say this is what god did for us at a particular point in our nation's history and while we might be good about talking about god's blessings in our life at particular points Joel implies that it's equally important to talk about God's discipline in our lives. That the generations need to hear about those times when a holy God took my sin seriously. Joel says your children are going to be ministered to not only by hearing of God's faithfulness, but by hearing of his faithfulness to discipline his people when they refuse to be obedient. And then the next group that Joel directs his prophecy toward is the drunkards, which might seem like an odd group to warn. But again, understand that the whole nation is seen as basically a bunch of drunk people that are stumbling around in a spiritual stupor that are too slow, too dull to understand what's going on. So Look at verse 5. Awake, you drunkards! Weep! Wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. People, listen up. Like a drunk guy who's out of liquor, you need to be sad. Nothing makes a drunk guy sad except running out of what's keeping him drunk. And that's the warning. Israel, snap out of it. Like a drunk guy who lost his booze, you need to wake up to the fact that things are being stripped away from you here. The sin that you're tolerating is about to bring you not only to judgment, but it ought to bring you to mourning, weep, wail, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. He uses that plague of locusts, and he gives the picture of an invading, devastating army. Now, how do we know that he's talking about locusts and not an actual physical army? Well, because verse 7 says, "...it's laid waste my vine, splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Its branches are made white." That's what locusts do, not necessarily what physical armies do, but it is very important to get because he's going to reverse that image later on in his prophecy, and he's going to use a picture of locusts to talk about a physical army. But if we read these really quick, we miss those parallels. We miss the play that he does on those things. But there's this graphic picture of the locust removing everything good, everything productive, everything green from the land. And again, if you're paying attention, you see some remnants of Hosea in here, some parallel things. The idea of uh, the fig tree, the vine and the fig tree as pictures of provision, now used as pictures of judgment. So what are they supposed to do? Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. You need to mourn like a young woman who just lost her husband to an early death. That would be devastating, by the way. And he said, your sin needs to shake you awake so that you mourn like that. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. The ministers of the Lord, the fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Don't just just mourn because God's taken away the good things, the luxuries, like sweet wine. You need to mourn because God has even taken away those things that he demanded for his worship. You go to the temple now and you can't bring the offerings that he told you you were supposed to bring. And if you look at this, it's another reminder of why all of this ought to matter for the people because who's vine and whose fig tree are they look at verse seven what does he say it is laid waste to my vine It is splintered my fig tree whose land is this this is god's land and it always has been the people possess it at god's good pleasure and great mercy and abundant loving kindness and they possess it in their obedience but it never belongs to them All of this belongs to God. And so as they see the richness of the land taken away, as they see the offerings of the people, uh, their ability to bring those offerings taken away, it should remind them of who all of this belongs to in the first place. And so the call goes out to these people, wake up. Snap out of your spiritually drunken dullness and stupor and figure out what is going on. Look at the clear sign that God has put in front of you. And if you won't see the sign, then at least hear the voice of the prophet. You have to see what's really going on here. And we turn to verse 11, and it takes us to the next group. That's the farmers. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because of the harvest... Of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up. Look, if the elders can't see, if the people are too dull to see it, maybe those directly connected to the land will see it. The farmers, the tillers of the field, the vine dressers those people directly connected to the land and the produce. And so here's the question, where is it? Farmer, where's the wheat? Where's the barley? Vine dresser, where are the grapes? Go look at your apple tree. Maybe apricot, depending on the translation. Go look at the pomegranate tree. Where are all of those things? Surely the ones who are connected to their production are going to see that they're just flat out not there anymore. See, the thing is, maybe you can ignore when God takes away the good stuff, like the sweet wine, the luxuries. Maybe you could even sinfully ignore when God takes away what you need to bring him the sacrifices that he called you to. But try to ignore it when God takes away all the food. Everybody gets hungry. These are the things, not only that were basic and essential to their life, but again, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. These are the exact things that God said he was going to sustain them with. Back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 8, verse 6, God says, I'm moving you into a good land. Keep the commandments. He says, the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water, fountains and springs, flowing out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees trees. And honey, See, this was supposed to be a land where they lack no good thing. And now when they lack every good thing, it is supposed to point them back to a theological conclusion. But what happened? All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of men. The provision is gone. And if they would only remember what God said if they would only remember what he's already written to them and to their fathers and to their fathers' fathers, if they would only remember what the words of the Lord said, then maybe they would respond rightly and repent and turn back to him. Maybe they would mourn then, and their mourning would bring them to genuine repentance and change. And then the final group that he directs this message to is the priests. We've already seen them mentioned kind of in relation to the offerings earlier in the chapter, but now he gives them a little bit more of a full treatment. Verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. See, the priests were supposed to lead the people in worship. The priests were supposed to be the mediators, the go-betweens from a holy God to a sinful people. They were supposed to bring his offerings uh, on his timing, in his way, the right things, the right way at the right time. And the fact that they can't even do that, they physically are unable to bring the things together to offer the Lord, he says it can't go unnoticed by you. Priest, you have to see that you can't even do the one thing you were designed to do. And that should bring you to mourning. Put on sackcloth. This is like the itchy sweater that your grandma got you for Christmas times 10. It's a garment of mourning. It's uncomfortable. It's visibly demonstrating a brokenness and a discomfort. And he says, don't just put it on. Wear it all night. Try to sleep in a camel hair shirt, a coarse burlap sack, a rough, itchy garment. You can't do it. He says, good, stay awake, mourn, wail, weep. And just as the people are supposed to be led by the priests in worship, the implication is now they're supposed to be led by the priests in the morning. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out for the Lord. Priest, do what you're supposed to do. Lead the people. Drag them to the temple and drive them to their knees in sorrow over what is happening. You tell them. Call the fast, call the solemn assembly, bring the people together and remind them that they, as a national body, are called to respond to the God that put them here. They are called to respond rightly to their sin. Be the example of the broken heart that has to happen in the nation. You see, that doesn't sound like fun, church. That's not the way to win people. That's not the way that you're going to change Israel by coming and telling them to be sad. You've got to bring them with joy and delight and promise them good things. God says, no, 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 no. There's a time when my people need to be broken over their sin to the point of national mourning and lament. And it's not because God loves a sorrowful people. It's because this is how serious it is. If they don't take it seriously, look at what's coming in verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Here's why you have to take it seriously. Because something is coming that will make the locusts seem insignificant in their scope. If you don't read this sign right, if you don't respond properly to what is actually going on, something much worse is coming. The food's going to be cut off. Joy and gladness cut off. The seeds are going to shrivel. The storehouses, the barns, they're not going to have anything left. The beasts of the field are groaning because of what's happening. And this final phrase here in verse 19 and 20 is the model for what is supposed to happen among the people. How should they respond? Once all of this is made plain and put before them, here's Joel's personal response, verse 19. To you, O Yahweh, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Apparently, not only were there locusts, but there was a drought happening at the same time. So imagine barrenness and dryness and just the feeling that the whole earth around you is on fire. We live near desert. We can picture that. Israel is on the border of wilderness, the most barren, burning kind of wilderness. And he says, Lord, in light of this, I'm crying out to you. We don't need better irrigation. We don't need rain, Lord. We need you. And then look at verse 20. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up. The fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The beasts are suffering because of the judgment. But it's fascinating how he points out even the beasts of the field pant for you. The livestock seem to get it. And here's the non-flattering picture At this point, the cows are smarter than Israel. Even the livestock know to groan to you, but you, prideful, arrogant, stubborn, drunkenly slow Israel, don't get it. That's the stage for where Joel takes this morning the rest of the two chapters of the book. What's characterized the people here is a loss of lament but what do we do with that well the reality is we don't like to be sad either do we we don't like to move through hardship or pain we actively avoid discomfort everything from the gym to the difficult conversation even in our conflict we're so uncomfortable with sorrow or with with friction that someone says a quick I'm sorry, and the first answer is, well, that's okay, because we want to move past it. When there's despair, we want to move through it to get to the joy, and, and that's not, it's not that we're supposed to be a people who desire to be sad. That would be insane. It's not supposed to be that we're a people that are constantly depressed. That's not what I'm saying, but there's an appropriate place for grief over sin, We, as a Western culture, have lost our ability and our desire to lament. To say that certain things are tragic and breaking. And the sad thing is, if we never get there, you never repent. If sin is something that just gets a pat on the head and moves through quickly, if there's never a brokenness over it, then there's never a real repentance. Repentance lament and mourning bring us to a place of humility and dependence, and that's where God meets us. That's where the mercy of God is demonstrated as he lifts up and binds up the lowly and the wounded and the broken, and that's when we experience the joy and the hope of restoration. So how do we live in this? Three things that I want us to consider. First of all, wake up. Not every tragedy, not every pain, not every bad thing is a sign of God's judgment. That much is absolutely biblically clear. Paul says that suffering is a gift when it means you're on the right side of the gospel message in Philippians chapter 1. Peter says that difficulties test and purify so that your faith shines like pure gold. James says that tests and trials produce endurance. Not every painful thing in life is a sign that God is judging you and disciplining you. However... There is value in stopping and saying, is what I'm going through a result of my own sin? Is God, in fact, trying to shake my slow, stubborn heart to attention with what's going on around me? Second, pass it on. What if we do see an area that needs attention? What if we do have to come to a place of repentance and sorrow over our sin? Who are you going to tell about that? So often when we move through something, we try to get through even the sins and the brokenness of our life and patch it up so quickly that no one notices. I struggled with that, but I did it privately. Maybe, maybe my wife knows because she found out, but I struggle with that thing, and then we overcome it, and now quickly I can move back, and nobody knows the difference. And everybody just assumes that I'm a normal Christian guy with the standard progression of Christian maturity in my life, and everybody's none the wiser. No, what if we need to hear about the brokenness in each other's lives as much as we need to hear about the mercy of God as he brings us what we typically count as blessings? We are very, very quick to talk about the promotion, to talk about the sports victories in our children's lives, to talk about the great insights that we have in Bible study. We are very, very slow to talk about how God has broken us and restored us. Maybe, just maybe, God knows that we as a people need reminders of both. And finally, who's watching you? Elders, priests, wake up. Call those people who are watching you to attention as you are called to attention. So the question is, who is watching you? Your children, your grandchildren? your spouse, your non-believing friends, your brothers and sisters sitting in the pew next to you on any given Sunday? Who are we actively passing our faith and our knowledge of this kind of God onto? Are, are we even aware that there are those who will mirror and model our faith? Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are often slow uh, Where the tendency of our flesh is to be dull, to be hard of hearing. Lord, wake us up. Use whatever means are necessary. And what a terrible and terrifying prayer it is, Lord. But use whatever means are necessary to shake us out of our spiritual slumber. Because it's only in driving us to repentance that we can experience restoration and forgiveness. And Lord, as we see those things, help us to tell about those things. Not just the God who does good and pleasant things for us, but the God who works through and in our brokenness, in our failure, and restores us. Lord, in our weakness, may you be shown as strong. Lord, you are good and merciful to us. You're kind and you're patient. And we praise you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.